You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents Network of Podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and with me today is Dan Halperin, publisher and president of Echo, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. Now, I want to hear the entire story of your professional uh, life as publisher of Echo, but also as the time spent um, as a magazine editor, as a writer, and as a writing instructor. So why don't we start with magazine editor and tell us about that life. All right. Well, I mean, it began um, in Tangier, where I went to live for two years because I had met Paul Bowles, and he had told me about Tangier and what it was like to live there. So I went, uh, not knowing what to expect. And how old were you? I was, I don't know, I was around 19 or 20. So Paul Bowles suggests to you, it's a really cool place. And you, what, you gather your belongings and a little bit of savings? Well, I had been working as a conscientious objector because I was against the Vietnam War. And uh, I had two years of school left and two years of working for this alternative service in a hospital. So when I finished that, I just wanted to get out of the United States. And I met him right at the end, and I had read his, his novel, The Sheltering Sky, and I thought this would be the place to go. Wow. It turned out to um, to have been the right place to go for me. Mm-hmm. And how long did you spend there? I was there, um, I was a little older actually, I was probably 22. I was there um, for two years. And while I was there, Paul said, have you ever thought about starting a literary magazine? And I hadn't. In fact, when I was in college, I had to take something, bef- this was before the uh, era of euphemism, they called Dumbbell English, and it was pass or fail. And after the third week, the teacher said, you're going to have to drop out because you're not going to pass this course. Seriously? And I forgot to drop it, and he, he wrote me a postcard saying, you have to take the test because you um, didn't properly drop it. So I went and I took the test. It passed. He called me in and he said, I don't want to ever see you in another English class in this university again. And I said, don't worry, I never will take one. And I never did. Wow. That was my um, introduction to the English department. Yeah. And writing. Wow. So anyway, um, I didn't know what a literary magazine was at that point. And uh, he said, well, I'll back it if you stay another year. This was after the first year. And edit the, the thing and I'll pay for it. So we started a literary magazine, which he wanted to call Atlas. But because I grew up in Los Angeles, it was a bodybuilding magazine. Yeah, you had a different association. So he said, well, let's call it Antaeus. I had never heard of Antaeus. But Antaeus was a famous North African wrestler who Hercules had to wrestle with. And every time he threw him down, he got up stronger because his mother was the Earth. And I like that name. And so the magazine began in 1960. The magazine began in 1969. And then I came to New York to go to Columbia for the MFA uh, program there, and brought the magazine with me, but Paul only backed the first issue, so we had to find funding. And um, I got a letter one day 
from a woman with the H.J. Uh, Hines logo on it saying that she wanted to subscribe to the magazine. And I said, well, I, I would love to take your check, but I have two problems. One, I don't have a bank account to deposit it, and there may not be another issue because we have no money for future issues. And she said, well, come and meet me. Uh, I'm interested in starting a magazine or backing a magazine. So I went to see her, and it was Drew Hines, who was the wife of Jack Hines, who was then running H.J. Hines, the uh, stepmother of the senator. Yeah. And um, I went to a party at her house, and I never did meet her that night. But Because um, it was just a big party, and you never it was made a big, it to that side of the room? It was a big party, and I, I thought it was informal, so I had jeans and a T-shirt on. And when I got there, it was a black tie affair. And when I looked up the staircase, I started going up. At the top was Rockefeller and Lindsay talking. And I said, I am definitely in the wrong place. So I would have headed back down the stairs, but there was a woman with a big tray of drinks behind me. <laughs> so I had to go up. And the one person I knew there was Renata Adler. Okay. And she was wearing hot pants, and she was then dating Warren Beatty. So it was a night of, you know, I walked in, and there was... Um, Truman Capote asleep on Lillian Hellman's no. breast, and it was filled with it. Keith Richards was there. I mean, it was, you know, I had just come from Tangier and grown up in Los Angeles, so this was kind of amazing. But I never met Drew. I think it's amazing under any circumstances, under any with any background. Well, it was it was certainly lucky. So she later on said, um, "How much do you need to uh, do the next issue?" And I, you know, it was like four thousand dollars. So she sent it down by. Her chauffeur, really? her car came down and gave me the check. Eventually got a bank account set up and the magazine got started. And for how long did it continue? For a long time. For a we long did time, uh, yeah. like 65 issues. It was a quarterly for a while, then it was twice a year. Uh, and then Echo kind of took over. Yeah. And we ended it in like 98 or something. Yeah. So it went for a good period of time. Do you ever think about your life had you not? gone to Tangier? I think about it all the time. I mean, I, Paul Bowles wrote in my copy of The Sheltering Sky uh, something which is true for everyone, but certainly was true for me. He said, things don't happen. It depends on who comes along. And I was lucky to have met Paul, first of all. Drew Hines made um, Antaeus and Echo possible. Without her, it never would have happened. Um, and then along the way, you know, I met people who I'd admired for a long time and got a chance to spend time with them. William Burroughs meant a lot to me. Tennessee Williams meant a lot to me. Um, I had a chance to have dinner with Ezra Pound, which was Amazing. memorable. Yes. So. Now, with Tennessee Williams, was that with the magazine? Because I didn't know about that. I met him through, through the magazine. He sent um, a poem to publish in our first issue. He was a friend of Paul's. So oh, Paul really? opened the, the door to a yeah. lot of Wayne Burroughs as well. Um, the first issue had an interview with Gore Vidal, which Paul set up. Uh, he uh, introduced me to the writing of Calvino. Uh -huh. He didn't know Calvino, but he said, this is the best new yeah. writer in yeah. Europe. So uh, it's, it's always a matter of luck. And then being a little obsessive is always good. Yeah. And... So a little ambition in there. And intelligence, surely. Now, did you tell me that all of your archives have gone is it to the New York Public Library? All the archives, mine, the magazine, the press, everything up to that point 
went to uh, the New York Public Library. And when did that happen? A couple of years Probably ago? Probably 1998. What they were interested in primarily were the, um, the, the, the correspondence yeah. with all these people. Long correspondence with John Cheever that oh. I didn't even know was there, but the biographer knew about it. Wow. And I called and said, can you, can you talk about that? And I said, well, I never corresponded with Cheever like that. I knew him, but I didn't have that kind of correspondence. It was about his sex life. And he said, no, no, it's, it's in there. I said, I'm sure you're not right. So he sent me, like, this 10-page letter where Cheever really talked about a lot of stuff. To you? To me, yeah. That's hilarious. So it's all there. And I wanted it there because my daughter can come and see it whenever she has an interest in her father. Um, not that she's not interested, Fleeting but she's as that interested may be. in a yeah. different way. <laughs> now, um, all right, this is, these are all such wonderful uh, stories. And and then you were a teacher at Columbia. You were both a student and later a teacher at Columbia and Princeton and where else? The New School. The New School. The New School was my first job. Uh, I went. I started the MFA program at Columbia in 1970, and that's a two-year program. And in 71, um, a man named Hayes Jacobs, who was running the writing program at the New School, hired me for whatever reason. And I taught a couple of fiction workshops and a couple of poetry workshops. And that was my first teaching experience. Terrifying. But I, I love that. My, my teaching at the New School was, was really important. I mean, it, 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 um, it focused me in a certain way and taught me about um, editing. I learned a lot about editing uh, by, by teaching. teaching. Then I taught in Princeton off and on a couple times, two or three times. They were undergraduates, so very different uh, groups of people. The new school was continuing education, basically. So you have yeah. kids from 18, 17 taking classes with 80-year-olds, and that was fantastic. Right. That was really great. So tell us about your poetry writing, because you've published eight volumes? Something like that. Um, I, I started writing poetry when I was at San Francisco State, my first my first year of college, because I had this roommate who was one of the original surfers. He looked like Hemingway, Samuel McElfresh, and he was a great big six four, literally looked like Hemingway, big guy, and he had this girlfriend who lived in the dorm next to ours, who was about five foot, little um, Jewish woman. Uh, and he would write poems and then go out and read them to her <laughs> at 2 in the morning, which didn't work so well for the roommates. But um, I thought it was so, a very romantic thing to do. So I, you know, I tried to write. So poetry. you were writing for someone in particular, perhaps? No. Um, there, there was a woman who I was, I was kind of uh, completely in love with, but um, I didn't know her. So she was a, a figure. Mm-hmm that um, I could write to. But I, I started to read poetry, which helped. Yeah. And continued to write it. And when I was in Morocco, I spent a lot of time writing it. Yeah. And uh, when I got into Columbia, that was, that was a big deal for me because I'd been such a bad student. Um, I mean, my last two years of high school, I worked on a fishing boat. Uh, I'm, I'm, it's amazing I got through high school. Yeah. Maybe I didn't. I haven't ever seen my diploma. It's possible I didn't graduate. <laughs> but um, Columbia was good because the workshops had some very good poets in there. I, I studied with Stanley Kunitz and Mark Strand. Yeah, wow. Mark became one of my best friends. 
Uh, James Tate was actually teaching there. I took a class with him. We ultimately published James Tate, and he became a close friend. Uh, so that was a really good period, and I was lucky to have a book taken by Viking when I was in my second year there at, at, at um, Columbia, and I continued writing. I had um, a terrific editor, first editor Ann Hancock, and then Elizabeth Sifton was my editor for mm. the Viking, and then she went to Knopf, and I followed her there and uh, stayed at Knopf. I think you're very modest. I, I, I suspect it's more than luck that got you those those contracts and those publications. I, I think it's a combination of a lot of things, but luck certainly plays into it. Yeah. And optimism. Yeah. That things are going to work out. Yeah, that that's that's key, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you got to believe. Now, um, moving to your to your role as as a publisher here at Echo. So you were an independent, you started Echo, it was an independent press, and it was focused mostly on backlist at that time. Well, when we started, I mean, it was a very different time in publishing in 1970. Um, I remember going to Viking. It was the first publishing house I'd ever been in. And there was a row of editors, and they would all, I mean, there was no email, obviously, and they would all write letters on the books they were reading and pass them along the line. So there was a lot of pressure to write a good letter. But there were some... You know, Alan Williams was there, Elizabeth Sifton was there, um, Cork Smith, who published Pynchon, was there, and these were really smart guys and women. And it was a little intimidating. Uh, but when we started, uh, I knew I wanted to publish poetry, and that was easy. We started a little series, and we got some, some pretty good books starting out. But we couldn't afford anything more than $2,500 yeah. at the top. For, for, for new books. So we did, we started to reprint kind of classics. And in those days, you know, the backlist, people were amazed. You want to you want to buy this this book that's been on the backlist that sells 20 copies a year. So we bought most of it for two or $300. Yeah. Including The Sheltering Sky was, for yeah, a term of copyright. For term of copyright for what, $100? No, $200. $200. Mm -hmm. um, and so we bought... You know, the books that I've been reading in Tangier, books that had gone out of print or were just sitting on a backlist. Uh, and that was very easy to do in those days. Uh, we bought some new fiction, but again, we didn't have much money, so it had to be fiction that wasn't going to be bought by any of the major houses. But we bought Tobias Wolf's first book of stories, and wow. that book did incredibly well, and he went on to a great career. But that was the one thing you had to expect as a small press publisher, that if you found somebody and they were good, you would lose them. Yeah. And a lot of people in the small press world are bitter about that, but it's just a fact of life. Yeah. Huh? And and you sold Echo to Harper how many years later? In 99, I was having lunch with Jane Friedman, and she, she said, so uh, what's it like um, running a small press these days? Because it was getting much more difficult. Um, a lot of the houses were throwing much wider nets, so books that we used to be able to buy in Frankfurt or London um, for a reasonable amount of money, you know, two or three thousand dollars, were now being bought by Doubleday or, or you know, St. Martin's, you know, presses that would pay ten thousand, which was nothing to them, but was way yeah, beyond huge. anything yeah. we could do. So that was getting difficult. We were also trying to publish enough books to make our overhead. Yeah. And so we had to ship 60 books a year, and I was starting to publish books that I didn't really like. Yeah. And 
this was right about the time I was having lunch with Jane. And I said, not so great. Yeah. And she said, well, why don't you sell it to, to me? And I said, fine. And it was done. It was the simplest deal. And she said, um, but you have to come and run it. And I said, I'll run it under certain conditions. Yeah, sure. For We're example, maintain no meetings. <laughs> and let me do it my way if I want to run it. And if I fuck it up, fire me. Yeah. She said, fine. Now, I've also heard you say something to the effect of, you know, publishing is basically a crapshoot, you know, and you just have to accept that. Do you, do you believe that? If you have, you know, a book that does really well, like sells 100,000 copies, there's a moment where you think you know what you're doing, Yeah. but the truth is you don't know what you're doing. And there is where luck comes in. You, we publish many really good books that sell 7,000 copies. Yeah. You can publish a book that may not be the book that you think is the best book, and it sells 50,000 copies. So it's, it's, there's a lot of luck involved. I mean, take Patti Smith. I mean, that book took 10 years for her to write. And she went over it and over it and over it. And there were times where I never thought that book was going to come out. And I'm sure she felt the same way. Yeah. But when the book came in, everybody recognized it for what it was. Yeah. And everybody did an amazing job. Still... You have to have the good book. You have to have the skill of the publishing people. You still need that percentage of, of luck to get it over the top. And she certainly got it, and deservedly so. And you certainly got it, because aren't you the recipient, I want to get the name right, of the Maxwell Perkins Award for Distinguished Achievement in the Field of Fiction? Congratulations to you. Thank you. If you live long enough, you get these things. Yeah, again. I think so. Anyway, this is an award that recognizes an editor, publisher, or agent who, over the course of his career, has discovered, nurtured, and championed writers of fiction in the United States. How did you that that is extremely cool? How did you feel when you learned this? It's it's a great award, and terrific people have gotten it. You know, since yeah, I was it looking began, at past recipients. Really it's wonderful publishers and, yeah. and editors and agents. So um, you know, to be in that group. Is, is an honor, and I'm, I'm flattered and slightly embarrassed by it. What do you think the biggest difference in your publishing life, in your work as, as a publisher, from, say, 2005 to 2015? What has changed the most? Well, everything has changed, really. I mean, the whole digital world has suddenly exploded and um, has changed the way we think about books, the way we sell them, how we... How we market them, how we advertise, how we find that audience, which is a, maybe it's, you know, there's enough overlap, but there, it's a different audience. It is, yeah. Online audience. and um, It's a different way to approach them, I know. think is the biggest difference, right? The way that you find them, the and, way you find them. and relate to them. Is, yeah. And the blog, the blog world. I mean, there's so many things that are different since 2005. Uh, and one thing I'm kind of happy about is that people thought I think the digital was just going to the ebooks were yep. just going to continue until the physical books were pushed underground, and that that's leveled off. Yep. And people still have a strong feeling about holding a physical book. Now I want to ask you a couple questions about you as a reader. How how do you how do you read? Do you read differently? When you've sort of got your acquiring hat on, then when you're reading for pleasure or or not, how, how well, do you approach it's very reading different. I mean, days? reading reading for pleasure is um, a rare occasion. 
That's you know, true, you right? Sit down, you know, yeah. If you sit down to read, like I was trying to read um, Swamplandia since it came out, and every time I sat down, you know, somebody had a new book, yep. and that's the priority. You know, I publish, um, you know, a lot of writers that I that I edit. And when they turn a book in, they want a response fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. And you, you can't, you don't read for pleasure exactly, although I'm reading the writing of terrific writers. Yeah, exactly. You're reading more analytically. But you're not reading it that way. Yeah. You're, not, you're not there to admire. You're there to, to, to see that they have done what they Hope wanted to do. to do. Yeah. And that you see anything in there before the reviewer sees it. But to make it exactly right, because you're the first maybe the first person to read that manuscript completely objectively. So the first read is really critical because everything that doesn't work stands out immediately and you mark it. And I, I, I believe, and I've told all the editors who have worked at Echo, your job is to, to say everything that comes to mind when you're reading someone's manuscript. The author can reject it, reject right. some of it, most of it, none of it, whatever, but you have to say it. And if an author gets mad at the over-editing, that's your job. All right, so now one last question about reading. I read an interview that you did with Paul Bowles in the 1970s, and one of the things that he talked about was how influential the books he read as a teenager were. So can, can you tell us about the books you read as a teenager and their influence on you? Well, remember, I was not a big reader as a teenager. Well, well, I guess then, as you're in your early well, I loved life. the Hardy Boys, and okay. I read all of those. And uh, I remember my mother made me read um, John Fowles, uh, the Collector. Oh, and that really that that got me that book. That's a good one, right? It's I would think that is book. a good one for and a I young boy. Loved Fowles as a writer. I, I, love him too. I read his later later books. Daniel Martin is oh, maybe my so favorite. Good, yeah. yes. um, and I read, uh, my mother had a big anthology of poetry, British and American poetry that I read. And I read um, Lewis Carroll, I used to like, uh, Walter Benton, kind of an old sentimental 40s poet, I think. But I wasn't a huge reader as a kid. Now, who did you recommend to your daughter? Did you? Well, I tried to get her to read uh, J.D. Salinger, and she hated him. She said, I'm too young to read this stuff. Well, how, young, how old was she? I don't know. She was 10 or 11. <laughs> Probably yeah, not. Might be. A... Uh, but she is a great reader. Yeah. And she had her own you know, series that she would read, and I would throw in books for her to read. And at Christmas, I would give her like five or ten books that I thought she would like. Um, but it's very hard. I mean, partly... I don't exactly know what she wants to read, and yeah. it doesn't help that I'm the one giving them to right. her. Yeah, that is so, challenging. So I'm careful. Every once in a while, she'll ask for an Echo book. And you'll say, hmm, that's I'll interesting. All right, well, thank you so very much. It's thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. 
We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.